I was always an Arsenal fan um, from 1971. My family connection with the club goes back to 1913 when my great-great-uncle was chairman of Arsenal. George Levy was chairman of Arsenal for a few years, kept it going um, by investing. He was a very successful haberdashery and put money into the club and kept it alive. This is pre-hybrid days, obviously. Hey, it's Sebastian Alvarado. Welcome to Coffee and Football, a long-form interview where I sit with some of the most influential and interesting profiles in the game. In this week's episode, I had the opportunity to speak with Michael Levy, the head of marketing, media, and CRM at Arsenal Football Club. He oversees a team of 60 people and is responsible for the commercial side of the business with the ultimate goal of bringing an increasingly global fan base closer to the club. We discussed the role and the strategies implemented across marketing, digital channels, media, and the importance of CRM, what it actually means, the key challenges that most top clubs have in common, and how they share insights and actually work in fairly similar ways. So if you're seeking a career in football and you can't make it onto the pitch, this is for you. Michael shares tons of insights and best practice on how the best teams in the world work. And for those of you just interested on the commercial side of the business, this is for you as well, of course. So without further ado, here's my chat with Michael Levy. It's an honor to have you here, Michael. Welcome to Coffee and Football. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My opening question always is because the theme is coffee and football. However, you rejected my coffee offer today uh, and had some tea instead. Uh, do you even drink coffee? I do not. No, I haven't drunk coffee for about uh, 20 years. So uh, my wife drinks coffee, but uh, I just stick to tea. As a good Englishman. As a good Englishman. Yes. Tea with a bit of milk. That sounds good. Um, you just came to uh, to New York City yes. today. Uh, what brings you here? Obviously, coffee and football is a big component of that. But w- what else brings you to the city? Clearly. Um, yes, I'm here for the uh, Leaders event, um, which is a gathering of uh, sports people uh, and a learning event where people bring uh, different ideas, ranging from you know specific things around sport within a franchise, right through to you know what's going on from a social media perspective, from a a VR perspective, an AR perspective, whatever the latest um, new thing is, which is affecting sport and, and it brings the great and the good of sport together. Uh, actually in two places, one in London in October in uh, at Stamford Bridge at Chelsea's ground, uh, which is the original leaders in football. Uh, and then the, the one in New York is a more recent iteration of that. And uh, traditionally Arsenal have always uh, had a representative there. And this year is my first opportunity to come. Oh, that's good. So what's typically kind of your main purpose and goal ar- around those events? It's learning more than anything else. I mean, there's, there's a networking element, obviously. So you, you meet peers, uh, which is, which is good to, good to do. Um, because I think as with any job, any organization, you can, if you don't take care, become a little bit inward focused and focused on the day to day. And you miss things that are going on around you. So it's important to get out and meet people and, uh, and that's, uh, interesting, enjoyable, and uh, and you know it. That's where the ideas come from, uh, and also the opportunity to come into the U.S. market, which, although the Premier League is a massively strong 
worldwide brand now. I think for all things marketing, um, from a sport perspective, I think we still take a lot of learnings from the United States with their, you know, their uh, major sports products like the NFL, NBA, MLB, where they've done really innovative stuff. So on the MLB BAM stuff, we look at and go, wow, that's just amazing that they were able to spin off a, you know, a digital business from a, a league basis and turn it into something which has incredible value and is now doing really interesting things. And MLB BAM have been to leaders in London and, um, uh, you know, it's, so it's that sort of thing that you, know, you hope to get the opportunity to sit down and listen to experts in those fields and and learn uh, and take things back to the club, which you can then develop within your own sphere and environment. Does that happen fairly often that, you know, you would see things out there and, and you're actually able to, to bring it? Or are there barriers from whether it's within the club or, or the way you do things? Um, I think the club, uh, and it's probably worthwhile sort of differentiating, obviously we're a football club and, you know, we'll come probably come back to this a bit later, but it's important to Although Arsenal Football Club as a brand is a is an international brand, really, you know, it's worldwide, it's recognised everywhere in the world. Fundamentally, we're still a football club. We have fans, we don't have customers, uh, and our job is to win football games. That's what we're all about. And you know, and we're having a you know, tough time at the moment, but you know, our job is to make the fans happy. So if you listen to our manager, um, you know, he is on record as saying, you know, his job is to make the fans happy, and he's right. It's about winning football games. So. The commercial side of the business um, is about obviously putting on a game at the Emirates Stadium, which is a, you know, a 60,000 seater stadium, uh, which is a home uh, stadium in London. Um, but it's about then generating the funds which allow us within our business model to put the most effective uh, team on the pitch, which our manager can then dictate the way that they play in order to get the right results, which generate the right returns and then you have a, a sort of virtuous circle then where um, improved re results on the field will actually start to play through into improved commercial results so the values of your partnerships and that type of thing will go up um, that creates greater revenues which can then be invested in the playing side and and therefore it goes on and on it's not linear in terms of, of course. You know, it doesn't just grow year on year so you have good years you have bad years because that's football and if, if you just continue to grow um, in a in a linear way, that wouldn't be sport and that would be boring and people wouldn't want to watch it because people, and I think that's one of the um, most interesting things about the Premier League, um, where it's competitive right the way through the league and that's the beauty of the league. The bottom team, you know, on their day will beat the top team and that means every there is something on every game, pretty much. And I don't think there's another league in, certainly in Europe, which can say that. So, you know, you have outstanding teams like your Barcelonas and Atleticos and Reals and then Bayern in Germany and PSG in France, but they dominate their leagues. They tend to dominate their leagues. Um, Premier League is not like that. Um, so you have a very competitive product, which I think is appealing for people who come to football maybe for the first time and want to sit down and, and they can watch a game between, you know, what some people might perceive as lesser teams, but they'll watch a great game of football, really exciting and end-to-end -end and, you know, lots of lots of drama. So, you know, we operate in that environment. And coming back to my the point I was trying to make, the so the football side within a football club and a, the commercial side are, are quite separate. They fit together because they're reliant on each other, but they operate quite separately. So my role, and I've been at Arsenal Football Club for you know, just over eight years, 
Uh, I, I didn't spend you know any time with the players at all. I mean, I've, I've met a few of them. I've met the manager a few times, but I spend a tiny amount of my time on that side of the business. My job is to figure out ways primarily to bring the fan base, which is increasingly a global fan base, a little bit closer to the club. So we have, just to get, to get this into some sort of contextual number, we have... Um, about what, so we have a, a membership structure and our entry level membership is, is digital membership. So you give us a little bit of data about yourself, your name, your address, uh, and we'll let you watch every video that we make. We used to charge for that. We used to charge three or four pounds a month for that. And we said, yeah, right, I, rem- that, I remember that. that. Yeah. And, we, and it's a common model. We're still in play and it was valuable. It used to make us, you know, significant amount of money. And actually led by our marketing, uh, um, director at the time, he still was Charles Allen. He said, this isn't right. We've got, uh, an opportunity to really engage with our fans. And what we're doing is we're trying to charge them again for a, uh, a relatively small amount of money when actually what would be much more useful to the club would be to take the information about these fans who we know nothing about, uh, let them consume our content, let them talk to us about their content so we can evolve that content. And that becomes a much more interesting way of engaging with that fan base. So that a digital entry-level membership now, we've got about 1.7 million digital members mm-hmm. when we were selling it as a subscription service we sold it to about 20 to twenty-five thousand. so it was meaningless from getting yeah. an understanding of that international fan base and as the, the you know the, the fans continue to engage with the club in different markets what we're trying to do is just trying to bring them a little bit closer to the club so you know we've got 40 million followers on facebook we've got nine million um, followers on twitter uh we've got increasing following on all social platforms from all the developing Chinese platforms, um, Snapchat, um, uh, Instagram, all of those areas growing rapidly for us. But we know very little about somebody who says they follow us on Facebook. And what we want to do is we want to find out a little bit more about them. And in, increasingly, I think Facebook are also seeing um, the role that sport can play within offering entertainment within the user group. Uh, and what we're trying to say to Facebook is, that's great, we'll give you that content. But what we want to know is we want to know a little bit more about people who say they're Arsenal fans within Facebook. We don't want to take them off Facebook. That's the platform they want to stay on. That's fine. We understand that. We we recognize in, uh, in, in the way um, content is consumed these days that you can't dictate where somebody goes. So the days of saying, here's a teaser video and watch the rest of it over here. That's gone. I mean, you're not, you, you can't move people around. You've got to respect where they want to consume content and give it to them in that environment so what we're saying to facebook is look you know we are continuing to put content on your platform we know you've got a lot of people who consider themselves arsenal fans we'd just like to know a little bit more about them and try and make them feel via facebook if possible that being on facebook as an arsenal fan means something um so you're one step closer and if we can bring them one step closer then the next step is we can bring them a little bit closer again and then ultimately you know a lot more about them and then actually the partnership work that you do so into the world of sponsorship that is the market which is evolving where you want to know more about the fans who you say you've got so are those platforms typically like good at sharing that information or do they want to hold on to that themselves i think historically they want to hold on because they're young companies and they're trying to demonstrate to their investors i guess that um, they have control over that base. They've got people returning to their platforms and ultimately then they can monetize it through an advertising model. So 
I think when any of those, um, you know, fantastic platforms that actually achieve a critical mass and, you know, for everyone that does, there are a hundred that don't. So those ones that break through, they're protective of that user base. And I totally understand that. By the time you've got to the sort of age that Facebook is now, and Facebook has sort of crossed the Rubicon, Facebook is a, it's like Google, it's a fact of life now, it's not going anywhere. Um, I think they're much more um, open to a, a discussion whereby they start to see the value that not just Arsenal, but you know, other football clubs and other entertainment organizations can bring. They, don't want to, they know that we don't want to take fan, the, the users away from their, um, their platform. But, but they are, I think, starting to understand that there is a benefit in sharing a little bit more information. Early days, um, but they're certainly investing in sport you know, in a big way. And they're moving very fast. I mean, we, we see even now the deal that the MLS did in terms of live streaming certain yeah. games on, on Facebook, which is quite interesting. You know, we're so used to this traditional model of, of TV rights and, yeah. and the big networks owning owning that. And now you start seeing some of these massive tech platforms yeah. uh, going for some of those rights. Yeah, and I guess the, um, I think they call it cord cutting in America. I'm not, yeah. I'm not an expert on by any means on American media, but I think that phenomena of um, people having had you know, cable packages which were expensive and which really drove those models. And we have it in the UK with um, subscribers to the likes of Sky. When people start to move away from that and move to OTT products or taking their um, live sport from a, a platform such as a YouTube or a Facebook or, or Twitter, um, I think that starts to really shake the whole market up. And I think we're in that very much in that space where the, there's, a, there's a dynamic for change going on in that in that area, and that makes it interesting because you know those those rights sold traditionally through the linear platforms are incredibly valuable and important to sports clubs like our own. So if you if you look at a football club in the Premier League, I look at a football club like Arsenal in the Premier League. So we're a self-sustaining model. We don't have um, we have a very wealthy owner who's a, actually an American gentleman called Stan Kroenke, um, but. Our model is one of self-sustaining, so we spend what we make. Um, Stan doesn't expect us to, you know, be generating, you know, money which he takes out. That doesn't happen at all. It all goes back into the club. He's great from that perspective. He lets us get on with it. Um, but what we uh, need to be able to do is to develop the three main revenue streams that we have. And, and clubs of our size, there are three. It's a simple business. There's the the people who come to the games, that's ticketing revenue. And with a club like ours, because we're very fortunate to be able to sell out most of our games, that's sort of reaching its maximized point. Um, How many season ticket holders is it out of the... Because I think it's 60,000. It's a 60,000 stadium. Um, we have about 9,000 premium seats. Um, so those are made up of box holders, club level, and some uh, premium sort of club areas. Uh, um, one of those is called Diamond Club. Uh, and then we have uh, 34,000, 35,000 season ticket holders. Uh, and then obviously we have the away fan allocation and then we have some match-by-match -match tickets as well. And so most games, with the exception of some EFL games, which might go to general sale, we might have one or two games like an EFL games that go general sale, or we might not in some seasons, and none of them might go. So they all are sold through that membership uh, program that we have. Um, and that means that, you know, there isn't a, and there isn't an opportunity at Emirates to say, well, okay, we're a 60,000 stadium, we're going to make it a, an 80,000 stadium, and we're in a rural, uh, we're in a, an urban area within North London, well, we don't, can't make the stadium any bigger. I'm not sure we'd want to, but we can't, we, you know, the stadium's not going to get any bigger, it's 60,000, it's right for our, our club. 
So you've got the ticketing revenue, you've got the broadcast revenue, which um, you know over the last few years the Premier League value has gone up amazingly, and they've done an incredible job, the Premier League, in, in selling those rights, not just in the UK but also internationally. Uh, and they announced a deal in China quite recently, which is incredible. Um, and then the the last side is the commercial side. So each club have um, partnerships where you know they have sponsors in to um, sponsor the shirt, um, sponsor the manufacturer of the shirt, and then secondary partnerships, cars, um, uh, credit cards, those types of things. We have a you know we have all sorts of uh, partners in that area. Uh, we have a retail business, obviously, where we sell through our own shops and we sell online increasingly. Uh, we have a tour business, so people come to actually visit the Emirates Stadium. We had. A couple hundred thousand people came through that last year. It's growing rapidly. We offer um, eight or nine different language variations so people can kind of turn up and go around and look at the stadium and get a commentary in their own language. And um, so all of those fall into the commercial pot, which is the area of the business that I sit on, and ticketing is an area as well. So it's a, it, imagine a, a stool. It's got three legs. Those are the three legs of revenue. There's no mystery. There are no others at the moment, you know, maybe in the future model will change but that's that's the way it works and if you have a, a club like ours where you know we're self-sustaining um, we have to make each of those legs work hard um, and I guess you know Man United would have a similar model and they're you know significantly bigger than we are and they make that uh, uh, those three legs work a little harder than we do and we hold them up as a, a, a target and we you know that, that, that's who we're, we're chasing uh, and of course performance on the pitch helps with that because that will make your partnerships should be slightly easy to get at a slightly higher value, um, but um, it's not totally dependent either. You can still perform successfully in those areas. Yeah, of course. Um, were you always an Arsenal fan? I was always an Arsenal fan um, from 1971. My family connection with the club goes back to 1913 when my great-great-uncle was chairman of Arsenal. George Levy was chairman of Arsenal for a few years, kept it going. Um, by investing, he was a very successful haberdashery and put money into the club and kept it alive. This is pre-hybrid days, obviously. Um, when we moved to hybrid in 1913. So my family's been connected to it. My father was born in Islington. Um, now, again, I would also not hold myself up as the, uh, you know, be all and end all from Arsenal fan perspective. I am not. There are people who know much, much more about the club and, you know, all the minutiae and the detail. I'm not that type of a, a fan, but I am a, an Arsenal fan. Um, and I, Although Arsenal has changed massively even since I've known it, so since 71 to today, it is a very different business, but at its heart, it is still a football club. It still has, I think, the same values. So, you know, be together, act with class, always try and move forward, always try and be an innovative club. I think those core values are still there. They may become slightly obscured at certain points in time. So, you know, at the moment, our manager is coming under scrutiny from you know, certain elements of the fan base. So maybe some of those values start to get a little bit obscured, but they're still there, you know, and you can see it in the, you know, in the way the club is made up. And we have a, you know, one of our directors, um, Mr. Ken Fry, who's been with the club, you know, since I think he was 12 or 14, and he's still with the club, you know, he's in his 80s now. Um, you don't get that in modern business. That's not a business model. You, I don't think you'd walk into Unilever or a, Procter and Gamble and find somebody like Mr. Fryer doing a, a vital role for the club and and we've got it and that's I don't think that would be unusual in football though I think if you went round um, you know other clubs you'd find characters maybe not quite as august as Mr. Fryer but they'd be there and they yeah. and they're important to the fabric of of most football clubs and I think you have to go a long way before you 
lose that, whereby the football just becomes part of a wider entertainment. Now, football is entertainment. It should be entertainment. But, you know, sometimes when you watch, you know, when I watch Arsenal, it, it's a certain masochistic level of entertainment. I watch it through, you know, clenched um, fists and, and through, you know, through, you know, my eyes closed at certain points. But that's all part of being a fan. Obviously, you watch every home game at the Emirates, I assume. All the home games. When you watch, is there any component of that where you put your work hat and your marketing hat on when, when you sit there and watch that game? Or can you actually enjoy it purely as a fan? Um, it, at certain points, I think you can enjoy it as a fan and certainly the game takes you over. Um, there are certain things, uh, because the media side is part of my responsibility as well, and just to sort of take a step back, and um, when I first joined the uh, the Arsenal It was to run the media side of the business. So my involvement on a match day was was more significant. I didn't have a specific match day role, but I had closer responsibility for it. I still have responsibility for what goes on in the stadium from a media perspective. So if we had a situation whereby, and I remember this happening in a, a game against uh, Everton, Everton scored a goal which to all the world you would say that was offside. And the, I can't remember who scored it, but they were offside by a mile. And the the rules within the Premier League, and this is consistent across all the Premier League clubs, is you're not allowed to show a contentious replay. So the fans, and and this is where actually social media is becoming actually really interesting because what, and the, I think logic behind it, and I guess there's some sound sense behind it, logic behind it is don't show contentious replay because one, you're undermining the referees having to make that decision, and two, you will cause issues maybe within the fans if there has been an incorrect call and you'll get, uh, you'll, you can end up with fan, fan problems. So the rule is you don't show contentious uh, replay. Anyway, we showed the replay kind of by accident. So we have a, we have a, um, uh, a team on, on site and they sit within an editing gallery. And uh, when there is an incident, they are having to make decisions uh, on the fly immediately. Um, this was a goal. And so in normal circumstances, you would show the goal as a, as a replay. The issue with this one is that there had been an offside immediately before it. So technically, they shouldn't have shown it. They did show it. The crowd went wild because, again, the angle they showed, it did look like the player was offside. Actually, he wasn't. When the referee had got it absolutely right and his, the referee's assistant they were spot on, you could not tell that until he got out of half time and looked at all the replays. I mean, actually, they were right. The atmosphere in the Emirates became very excitable for a period of time. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh, we could be in trouble here. We could be fine for this. We could be, you know, I could be in for some serious conversations tomorrow. So at that point, you're divorced a little bit from the game, although you immediately go, okay, they've scored. That's bad. But actually, hang on a minute. We shouldn't have shown that. And, and this is having quite an impact on the, on this game. Um, so you then dial into, you know, the team who are doing that saying, guys, you just need to be careful now because you shouldn't have shown that. You know that. So there's then an, an action uh, you know which which is part of your job which comes into into the into watching the the game itself now my role has changed a little bit and I look after three areas now rather than just the media side so even that's become less of an issue but you know you will still watch a game and if you know an led board goes down or something happens you're conscious of it and you'll you know maybe start making calls during the game get around to see people and you know and you need to meet people and talk to people Uh, at the game as well so it's a, you know from our position it's a you know it's it's not just watching the game there's a, there's a business element to it as well
I just want to ask you a little briefly about your um, upbringing. Uh, I want to know a little bit more about your about your background. Where did you grow up? Um, <clears throat> I grew up in uh, Maidenhead, which is in um, south of England. It's about twenty uh, five miles out of London. Um, so, you know, pretty normal background. I've got uh, one sister who lives in the United States, lives in Arizona, and uh, I've got. Uh, I started my career I did a degree and then I went uh, into uh, as I said already into uh, food marketing uh went on did an MBA <clears throat> and we well, we haven't touched since how I got into sport I was running my own business actually running a uh, a software business called uh, Tenduke which is still going um run by a very talented team based in Finland and we spoke, spoke about those a little bit earlier as well and um uh, I and Arsenal one of our clients and Arsenal one of our clients because The then chief commercial officer was a guy called Adrian Ford, and Adrian Ford had done his MBA at the same place I'd done my MBA. So I was checking out the alumni, as we always do when we network, and I rang Adrian, and very kindly he allowed me to come in and present my business to, to him. We started doing some work together. And then I was at an event in Switzerland uh, at uh, the Olympic Federation uh, Conference, and I was making a presentation on behalf of my company. And in the audience uh, was a guy who was headhunting for the role at Arsenal. I didn't even know about it. So the guy who was my client at Arsenal was leaving. He was going back to South Africa. And um, this guy and I got talking over a beer in the bar and he said, oh, I'm actually looking for a guy at Arsenal. I said, who's that? And he said, oh, it's Richard leaving. And I thought, that's interesting. I didn't know that. And I had to think about it. And I thought, well, actually, that's my club. And although I've got this business, so, you know, I, I would like to go and work in sport. And I rang him a couple of days later and said, if you're still looking, I'd, you know, I'd like to throw my hat into the ring. And it was a long process, many interviews later. In fact, my last interview was with Ivan Gazidis, our chief executive now. And my last interview was Ivan's first day at the club. Um, and he sort of rubber-stamped the, the, uh, my appointment, which was, which was very kind of him. Um, and that's how I got into sport. So total serendipity, no you know, not, not a plan, just a... What was your business doing? Um, we were developing um, social platforms. So social networks for verticals. We, so we had a social network in tennis. We had one in um, mountain sports. For Arsenal, we were doing something on their membership side. So we were developing some um, social um, platforms for their membership. So uh, um, that business has evolved beyond that. It's not doing that now. But uh, yeah, so that's how I got into, into football. What's a typical day for you? From the moment you get up, what kinds of morning routines do you have? And, and then from there on? Yeah, so um, I don't live in town, so I have a reasonably long commute. So um, I get to the office on a combination of I drive to the station, I get a train, and then I cycle from the train station in London to the office. So uh, on the train element of it, I will go through my emails, which have come through overnight. I'll look at various – we get a summary of all the news stories that uh, Arsenal have been involved in uh, for the previous day. So I'll look at that every day and see what, uh, what, what's been picked up, what's been covered. Um, get into the office, round of meetings with. So I have, as I said, I have three three departments that I look after: the media business, the CRM business, which is data effectively around the customer relationship management side, and the marketing side. So I'll meet with the uh, the heads of department, which is the guys who run those areas, uh, on a daily basis. Uh, make sure we're up to date with you know what our projects are. Make sure we've got we're tracking towards our objectives. So each year we set objectives for the business, and we need to monitor that we're on track for all of those. And just generally make sure that the team are doing what they need to be doing to create success within our own areas. So our team 
uh, overalls, just under 60 people. So it's quite big from a, uh, from even from within Arsenal. That's quite a big department. Um, and they need to work increasingly together because um, over the last few years, and this will continue, I'm absolutely sure, I think you're seeing a world where data and media are converging. So you don't just have a, a media story. You have a media story where you have a number of people who've consumed it, how much time they've spent on it, how many times they've retweeted it, it's on Twitter, how many times they've liked it, how many times they've shared it. That's data and media converging. Um, and then you take it to the next stage where you overlay that with your fans and what you know about your fans and how they're consuming your content and how they're sharing it through the fan base. And, and by understanding all of that, you get a greater insight into them and then how to actually present products to them and, and commercialize it from that perspective. So, uh, And that's the logic of bringing those three areas within the football club together because you need to take advantage of that as well. What time do you get into the office? Um, I'll be in the office by 8.30 and typically try and leave the office if it's not a match evening by 6, uh, a little bit before 6. Um, uh, if it's a match day, then we go through uh, and um, I watch the game and you know maybe go to the press conferences afterwards. But our journalists will be working and our photographers will be working you know, well beyond the, the, the end of the game. So if a game, game finishes, you know, if it kicks off at 8, it'll finish at around 10. Um, they'll still be there at 11.30, you know, getting their content up, getting your things out, getting things edited, prepped for the following day, deciding what's going to go at following the game, what's going to go the following day, what's going to go the day after that. So, you know, they work um, on the media side around a game incredibly hard and uh, and they're very dedicated and they're very skillful. They've got uh, great understanding, not just of Arsenal, but of the sport itself and great empathy, I think, for um, the stories that they're trying to pull together uh, for the club. Do you have any workout routines? You look in decent shape, so. Yeah, that's very kind of you to say. Um, well, I cycle. So I cycle um, 10 miles a day to and from the office, which is great. It's a relatively new thing for me. Uh, you have to be a little careful in London, probably a little bit like, like cycling in New York. You have to be careful. Um, and I go to the gym. I play a bit of golf, and uh, uh, and that's how, I, that's how I keep fit. So that, um, but other than that, no. I used to play... Days gone by football and uh, a lot of tennis, but, uh, you know, less so now. Do you have any readings beyond the that daily football content that you get? Yeah, I mean, I I, I read, I normally have two books on the go. So I have my, my train book and my bedside book. So uh, my bedside book is currently a, a history of the Silk Road, which is fascinating, and how the Silk Roots developed from the ancient times through the development of various different religions which is just an amazing book uh and through to tend to be uh, fiction or, or non-fiction on my on my travel so uh, you know yeah, a couple of books on the go um read a newspaper you know most days as well um and consume you know content news and sport from various different sites nearly always read the bbc i think the bbc is an amazing outlet and you know they're pretty balanced um do you have any things that you do in order to keep evolving yourself within within your role and in your career? That's a good question. Um, I think we touched on it before when we were talking about leaders. You know, I I challenge both my team and myself to try and make sure that we go and do actually things like this. So it would be very easy just to say, you know, you approach me and say, do you want to come and do this? Well, no, not really. I'm you know I'm in town and I'm going to do leaders, but and that'll do for me. But I think you have to try and do new things um, which will spark ideas and those ideas will then become the next thing that you can take into the environment at work and try and develop. Um, 
So this year, actually, what I've said to to uh, to my team and I've given them as an objective, actually, I want them to go to China individually. So one, my marketing director spends quite a lot of time in China, uh, but my um, head of CRM and, and media guys haven't been to China yet. Um, I went for the first time last year, and it is an amazing market. Now, I'm absolutely no expert on China, but it is a market you just need to see to see how it's exploding. Um, and if you haven't been, you can't understand it. It's so it's really important to, you know, if we think China's going to be an important market for football, from a like America is now from a consumption point of view, you've got to understand it. You've got to understand the scale of it. You've got to understand the differences between, you know, what, what does Beijing look like versus Shanghai? Um, and, you know, they're, they're, they're different. They're massive environments all on their own and they're different. Um, so, you know, so that's important. Take me through that kind of a trip. So you go there and, and you obviously want to learn about the Chinese market. Yeah. Take me through the details of that. Like, what types of meetings do you set up, and and what's the what does that itinerary sort of look like? Yeah, so we have a we have a guy um, called Tony Gu who's very talented. Uh, he's based in China, a Chinese guy has worked with us for a number of years, and and pretty much the main success we've had in China, I think we can credit to Tony. He's been absolutely brilliant, uh, really valuable to the team. Um, and uh so we would uh go over there we'd work with uh with tony he would um introduce us to agencies uh we may meet some um, uh supporter groups uh, we'll try and figure out ways to develop the membership we have six and a half thousand members on a paid membership scheme in china at the moment we're the only football club that got a paid membership scheme in uh in china at the moment um understand how the media in china is changing so Things like Facebook and Twitter don't exist in China. They have their own uh, um, uh, WeChat, Wexchen, Weibo. Uh, Tencent, yeah. Weibo, all of these types of things. You've got to try and understand those as well. So we'll try and meet those sort of people. Uh, the reason I was there was our media partner um, had recently been bought by a Chinese organization called Bofang. Uh, our media partner is a company called MPN Silver. And we worked very closely with them and they asked me to go over and represent the club as part of their introduction to the Chinese market. So, you know, it was a, like a conference. You know, I met a lot of people from different regions within the uh, Chinese market. It was slightly bizarre because people were taking pictures of me, but I look a little bit like Arsene Wenger and I have actually been um, mistaken. <laughs> I'm for, glad that you said it so I didn't have to bring good. that up. I have been asked for autographs outside the Emirates Stadium on occasion by uh, people coming on tours and saying, are you Arsene Wenger? I say, no, I'm not Arsene Wenger. He's a little bit older than me. But obviously he's in great shape and I'm obviously not as in good shape as I should be. But um, um, but in China, quite a lot of people were taking my picture, which was very bizarre. Um, but it's just a fascinating market. It's, uh, you know, it's changing. It's becoming more affluent. It's, uh, you know, a massive world force now. And, you know, you've got to go and see it. So, um, you know, that's uh, and because we're, you know, part of a brand where, you know, Arsenal's got great cut through in China as well. We've got, you know, massive fan base there. Um, and it's a privilege to go and represent the club in a market like that. So it's 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 an opportunity. I bet. Uh, is there any? Well, I, I know it's a more complex question than than what I'll ask. But is there any way of describing kind of the main differences between the Chinese football fan versus the more typical ones that you have in in Europe? And obviously, the American market is probably a little yeah. more similar to the European than. Obviously, the Chinese, but in in terms of how they consume content and how they approach that, yeah, um, I think okay. So, how they consume content, they are 
incredibly mobile-centric. So they've sort of missed out the browser stage, the cable stage, the satellite stage. They've gone straight to mobile, and mobile is the main device, as it is obviously increasingly in Europe and, and, and America as well. But they've just gone straight there. So it's mobile is the start and the finish of it from a consumption point of view. Um, they are... And it would be a mistake to generalize because, and that would be a bit, a bit of an easy thing to do. But if we look at um, when we tour to China, when we tour to Indonesia, those sort of markets, the fans that come and watch the games, and there are many, many thousands, they are really passionate about it. They're incredibly knowledge, knowledgeable, considering they, you know, haven't had the opportunity to watch the team. But that's a testament to the broadcast distribution that the Premier League have managed in those areas. But they are almost unconditional love. So the bit you don't get is you don't get that understandable cynicism that you get within the home market. So, you know, the Arsenal fans, um, you know, at home, they are massively supportive of the team. But when the team do badly, they will let rip as well. You don't tend to get, it seems, that side of it yet. And I think it's just an evolutionary thing. I think it's a nature of somebody coming to the support, maybe it's the first time in there. They see it all as positive. There isn't that negativity. But actually, you know, the negativity is probably important from a fan perspective as well because, you know, if everything was good, as we talked about before, that's not sport. That's that's entertainment. That's a, a musical or something like that. Football is about, you know, dark and, dark and light. And you have to have both to enjoy the win. If you never lose, you don't enjoy the win. So, but I think there is that certain element of newness which means that there's total positivity in those sort of markets. I guess that changes over time. Who is someone, it can be a marketing leader or anybody else, but who, who's a person that, that you look, look up to and, and try to kind of learn from? Um, <clears throat> I mean, I, you know, I'm sort of getting on in my career. So I think you look at different people at different stages in, in your career. And, you know, looking back, I would you know, certainly look at somebody like a uh, Steve Jobs, um, you know, somebody who took a business and innovated within that area. But, you know, what was the difference between an Apple and an IBM or an Apple and a Dell? It's marketing. You know, it's an understanding of um, what uh, a consumer needs and then providing them with an outstanding product that, that satisfies that need. And, and Apple sort of do that still I think as well as anybody else and certainly when Steve Jobs was running that area that or business consumers not even knowing what their need is and yeah. they create it yeah and that's that's quite quite inspirational I don't know how you take that and translate I think you look at it and go and you know I've, I've you know read biographies about the guy and you know he, he sounded like a tricky character genius as I think most geniuses are they, they you know they're tough to probably to work with because their standards are so high um but you know, I'm not sure you can take anything necessarily from it because I don't. I think if you're not wired in that way, you can't suddenly become a genius and and or an entrepreneur. You, I think, to a certain extent, you're built like that. Um, but there are, you know, there are other, you know, there are other leaders. I think who you can say, yeah, okay, you can learn from that. So um, I can't think of anybody in particular throughout my career. I remember when I was, you know, younger, the uh, you know, for a period of my time, I worked in the car industry and, you know, some of the um, innovators in those areas were, you know, quite impressive. And you, you can you can take different learnings, I think, and, and, and apply them. Um, and, you know, I also did, you know, right, you know, a long time ago now, I did an MBA as well. And, 
you know, some of the some of the things you take from that, um, some of the more, I suppose, uh, academic um, theorizing around business, you, you know, the, you know, your porters and people like that, you, you try and take certain things in that area and apply them to your business knowledge, which you then take forward in your career and you adapt and change and, and develop as you as you go through. Um, now, at my stage in my career, you know, it's more, I think, hopefully I bring levels of experience not just from football but or from sports industry but from other industries i've worked in so the data industry the online you know i've been through different dot-com iterations and and seen you know worked online for you know many many years now and try and bring um you know those experiences to the team that i've got you know working with me at the moment so you know people say there's no such thing as a new thing i'm you know maybe there is but you can also go down paths which you can see will lead to dead ends and you hopefully can cut off early from those and take the team in a different direction which is more positive so hopefully that's what experience should give you how would you describe your management style what kind of a boss are you um you should always ask that question to people who work for people you should never ask people who have people reporting to them i would say i hope that i'm a collegiate manager i mean that's certainly a style which i believe and that's something I took very clearly from my my MBA, and I know you've got an MBA as well, and you may have gone through a similar sort of thing. Um, where I went, they put you into study groups pretty much on day one. So you didn't know anybody. Um, you were put in a study group of six or seven people, and you were made to stay in that group. You could not get out of the group, so you could fight, You could, and there were fights. Um, you could fall out, but you still had to produce work within that group. And... Prior to my MBA, I'd worked in the car industry and I'd also worked in um, fast-moving consumer goods. So those are, you know, I worked for a biscuit company and I worked for a, uh, a flower company, actually, um, in the UK. Um, so it was all marketing before my MBA. And I think marketeers tend to be um, quite confident in their own uh, ability and, they, and, they, and they, they back their own opinion. And one of the big lessons I learned from my MBA was that generally, not always, but generally, you get a better decision and a better result if you work as a team. So most, and this is why they put us into these teams, because they wanted to show you that actually, if you work as a team, you get to the result quicker, you get to a more accurate result, and you get to a better result most of the time. Now, there are always one-off geniuses who can do do it themselves. Yes. We've all seen them in our careers, and, and they're, you know that's great, but most people can't work like that, and you have to take um, and get the best out of everybody. Um, so taking an individualistic approach when you've got a team of 60 as I have, you're going to, you're going to waste so much resource. So my approach is collegiate. Um, I try and let the right level take the right decisions. I think it's all about letting people be successful, making mistakes. Don't make the same mistake twice. Let them make mistakes, learn from it, and then take credit for what they've done. That's idealistic. But as I said, you should ask some of the people who work for me and see whether that checks out. Yeah, we'll, we'll be checking in with a few of those after okay. this. Uh, what, are the, what are your um, main challenges? Is there anything that kind of keeps you up at, maybe doesn't keep you up at night, but what would be things that you try to really work against to, to solve? Well, you know, my, um, and, you know, my team and I, we talk about this a lot. You know, we have, and this sounds really simple, and, but this is actually true for all football clubs, I believe. We have... Um, Global, a global fan base, an increasing global fan base. And we know, um, if you think of our um, fans 
there's a there's a diagram that our CRM team have developed, which is great for this. It, if you think of it in in circles, the people who come to the Emirates, we know a lot about. So if you buy a season ticket from us, we know your name and address. We know how much you spend with us. Increasingly, because of our investment in that area, we also know that if you've bought a, a shirt from us, if you've bought a stadium tour from us, if you bought some hospitality from us, we know it's all one person. We're not treating you as five or six different individuals. So the people who are right at the center of that, we know a lot about. And then as you go further out, so the people who come less frequently, um, the people who don't come at all but consume content from us, we know less and less about them. Um, in the future, I've got to know more about that Chinese fan who's just discovered Arsenal. I've got to understand a little bit more about them. Um, and that's the big challenge, bringing that distributed global fan base one step closer to the club. Um, that's a challenge. It's tough. Um, and you then get the opportunity long way down the line to ultimately monetize them, maybe at a B2B level or a B2C level. So, um, but that comes in the future and you can only get there if you set off on a path to find out a little bit more about them. So that's the big challenge. Um, so, you know, in the coming years, if we don't know, you know, three or four or five important things about our fans in China, then I've not done my job properly. Is that something that you would say is a very similar challenge for other clubs as well? It's the same challenge for, yeah, for all the all the bigger clubs, all the big European clubs will be exactly the same. So your Barcelonas and your Real Madrid and Bayerns and PSGs and Manchester Cities and Man United and Liverpool, all exactly the same. And Actually, football's a very interesting market. It's like no other market I've ever worked in. I've worked in a few different market sectors. Um, in that we can be quite collegiate with our opposing clubs. And, you know, fans listening to this will maybe call shame on me for that. But actually, if you think about it, um, uh, an Arsenal fan is an Arsenal fan and a Liverpool fan is a Liverpool fan. Um, there's nothing I can do as a marketeer at Arsenal to make that Liverpool fan into an Arsenal fan. It's impossible. You've picked your team. Your allegiances are set. The only place where the allegiances aren't quite set is people who are coming to football for the first time. And those markets are becoming fewer and farther between. And because we're big brands but small businesses, so Arsenal is about a £400 million business, which is you know is a lot, but it's not it's not a Tesco's, it's not a, a Walmart, it's not a, a Costco, it's a, it's a, it's a medium-sized business. What we need to do is we need to be more efficient about how we use our resource. So actually, if something is working for Liverpool, it will work for me. And if something's working for me, it will work for Liverpool. It doesn't matter to me that I share that with Liverpool because it's about them engaging with their Liverpool fans. I can't do anything about it with Liverpool fans. They're never going to make any money for Arsenal. So you can be quite collegiate in, in that way and you can work together. So when I say, you know, the, demand, the, um, you know, the top 10 or so teams in Europe, they would have the similar sort of objectives to Arsenal. It's not me just thinking that. I kind of know that as well because I, I know the guys who are running, you know, those businesses. So, you know, I came over on a flight today. Coincidentally, the my counterpart at Tottenham Hotspur was sitting in the seat next to me. Total, you know, serendipity. I mean, he was not even coming to lead us. They're doing a, um, an announcement about something they've got coming up, I think, on their tour. So, but, you know, but, you know, I know him well. And, you know, we have a chat and talk about, you know, what, you know, what his challenges. And, you know, we don't share financial information or anything like that but we you know i know i understand his business he understands my business it's it's you can be a little bit collegiate from that point of view which is interesting yeah it is and and i think as you 
you know, expand to not necessarily new markets, but like the Chinese market that's very untapped. And you mentioned Australia and obviously America is part of it as well. Um, That's, I guess, when it becomes interesting because you don't have those fans or they might be a little more fickle as fans might not be. They haven't grown up with Arsenal. Their dad didn't tell them to become an Arsenal Mm. fan. So they might still be kind of testing a few different routes. Some of them are just going to hop onto the bandwagon and and go for the for the top team that's that's on the top of the table but i'm sure there's massive audiences out mm. there that you guys are essentially competing for correct and that's you know and that's you're right that you know people are attracted to you know teams that are winning so you know chelsea have done very well internationally recently they've been very successful manchester united have been successful for a long time man city are you know growing rapidly from from a small base to be honest um but also i think it's then important to have other values beyond just the winning of the game, which is still paramount. You know, you've got to win games. It's, we're a football club. You've got to win games of football. But the values that the club have, the style of football that the managers uh, imposed on Arsenal, you know, so that, you know, people often say, you know, Arsenal are their favourite second team. So, you know, they may have their first team, which might be Barcelona or something like that, but they'll have an affinity with Arsenal because they enjoy watching us and they enjoy watching the style of football that we've got. They enjoy the history that we bring to the to the sport, so all of those things that go to make up our club story, you know, in another world we would call it the you know our brand story. I mean, I, I hesitate to call it the brand, although you know it's a, it's a worldwide brand, but you know it's it's our club, it's our it's our it's everything that we are. Um, you know, hopefully the fans and part of what my job is is to help them discover what the essence is of being an Arsenal fan. Um, but you're right, you're entirely right. You know, so. People coming to it for the first time would have odd affiliations where you think, well, how can you like both Arsenal and, and Chelsea? You know, wouldn't happen in the UK, but it can happen in other markets. And, you know, that will only, you know, shake out over a period of time where maybe, you know, either they'll continue to support two teams or, you know, focusing on one or, you know, the local league will start to develop and they'll move away from Premier League consumption and, you know, focusing on a local team. Within that, obviously, CRM is a very important component. Yeah. I, I guess just first, uh, it's not as obvious for, for everyone. How would you typically describe it for someone who doesn't really understand the, the fundamentals of it and, and the place that it has? Yeah, so CRM is an area where, you know, Arsenal as a club have made a, a big investment. I think, you know, if somebody coming into it for the first time, I think the, the best way to understand it is it, it is an understanding of what your fans are doing with you as a club. Now, to put that into context... Before we started this process, and again, we did touch on this a little bit before, um, if somebody bought a season ticket from us and they bought a shirt from us and they bought some hospitality and they came on a tour, we would treat them as five different people. We had no idea they were the same person. They were in five different pots, if you like. So the pot that bought the um, replica shirt, the pot that bought the season ticket, the pot that bought the hospitality. We didn't know they were the same. You know, So that's Michael Levy buying all of those things we had him as Michael Levy in six different places. So he wasn't one person, he was six different people. Now that doesn't make any sense when you're trying to communicate with them because if you say, actually, um, oh, by the way, you've bought a shirt, would you like to get some hospitality? Well, I bought hospitality, you should know that. You should, you, there's a responsibility from, you know, from any organisation to understand what a customer's doing and it's the quickest way to, to upset, to disillusion a customer if they don't think you have any understanding about what they're all about. So CRM in its simplest stage is getting all that information straight so you get a single view of that customer. So that Michael Levy now, I know he is that person 
who bought the shirt, who bought the season ticket, who bought the hospitality. Same guy. So don't try and sell him another shirt because he's got a shirt. One thing that I was thinking about, just in kind of looking at your role today and leading the marketing efforts and being one of the key business leaders within the team, we've talked about it quite a bit. You have fans from all over the world. It's mm-hmm. very diverse. Um, London itself is very diverse, perhaps yes, the most diverse city in the world. And diversity is kind of increasingly becoming, well, it's been for a while, but it's increasingly becoming more and more important in the in the workplace as well. And this it's just kind of my perception from looking from the outside in, perhaps not only Arsenal, but uh, I guess, you know, sports or football organizations in general. My perception is, you know, it's a bunch of white males, uh, you know, late 20s to mid 50s, roughly, who, who work for these clubs. Mm. Um, how do you approach that? Is, is it something that's kind of built in within the club that you should have a more diverse organization? Yeah. And uh, you know this is a this is a, I think a leadership position that that um, our chief executive is taking, and he, he I think he values absolutely values diversity and and making sure that's reflected within the club. And you know, if we look at my team in particular. You know, we've got different nationalities. Um, we've certainly got a, a gender mix. You know, it's not fifty fifty. I'm not going to pretend it is because um, I think the sort of roles that we advertise for, we see a lot more applicants from as you said, young men who want to get into football. So, um, you know, and we need to recruit the best possible people we can, we can get into a role. But that's not to say, you know, we have plenty of positions uh, on our technical side, on our um, development side, which are nothing to do with football. Um, so we have, a, you know, we have fewer positions which are directly uh, dominated by football. So we have journalistic roles, we have photographers, we have video editors. Um, but outside of that, all the roles are could be in any organisation, just so happens they're working for a football club and therefore the opportunity to recruit on a um a, you know on a gender balance is is open, of course, but you can only recruit people who come through the door. And so we've got to get, I guess, better at uh, at um, attracting people like that. I think, you know, Arsenal have always had a, a very strong involvement in the women's game, you know, very successful women's team. Um and I think that does play through to some roles, you know, that we've got where, you know, we've got women in some key positions. Could there be more? I, of course, I think that's always the case. And, you know, you know, again, this is another learning from my, my MBA. You know, if you, if you work in an organization which is dominated by a particular agenda or a particular, you know, racial stereotype, if you like, what you're missing out on is the opportunity that, a mixed workforce gives you and you can't afford in any business to um, not take advantage of that, uh, that that opportunity. So, you know, if you don't have any women in your working organisation, you are missing 50% of the talent in the world and that's uh, a position which is unsustainable from a business perspective. And, you know, we, you know, we're nothing like that. We've got, you know, a good mix and we've got, you know, I've got a, you know, my junior uh, gunner section uh, is run by an you know, incredibly talented young woman um, who's um, uh, actually Scandinavian, um, and uh, she's you know transformed that area and uh, and done you know uh, you know amazing things in in that. And it's nothing to do with her gender. I mean, she understands sport. She 
um, knows what she needs to do from a uh, developing youth section, which is which is difficult marketing and developing to marketing to youth sections is really really tough. Uh, and she does a you know an incredible job along with a lot of other people within the organisation. I, I think the thing you know thing and this would be true I think of any football club. I think a lot of people who work at them generally consider it a privilege to work at the club more so I think than any business I've worked in before a little bit different when I you know ran a business which I was involved in setting up that's different but there's a real passion uh, and a real you know desire to get things done and there's a feeling of and this might be slightly old-fashioned nobody wants to let the club down that's a that's a real important tenant of a you know back to the difference between a football club and a and a, and a corporate organization you know it's got a bit of, it's got heart the players themselves are an important component of the absolutely of the equation and what role does that access to the players play when you set the overall strategy um i think there's a well there has to be a recognition that access is limited and you know take my from my own experience i i assumed because when Arsenal were a client of mine when I um, worked at my previous company. And when I was at that client, I, uh, that company, I assumed you could pretty much do anything with the players when they were on their downtime. So uh, you know, I envisaged, you know, this is in the days of Seth Fabregas and players like that. I thought you could strap a GoPro to Seth Fabregas's chest and that would be it. And you could do whatever you liked. And I couldn't, <clears throat> stupidly, I couldn't work out why they weren't doing this type of thing. And you, you sort of, think, oh, maybe they just haven't thought about it. And of course they have thought about it. And the reality is that the access to the playing side is limited because first and foremost, they're footballers. Um, and although they have contractual obligations to you know, support us from a media commercial partnership point of view and also a charitable perspective, you know, their time has to be focused on doing their primary role, which is to you know, train and you know deliver results on the pitch so you know you have to be respectful of that so you get limited access to them and therefore what you get you have to use carefully and there are also restrictions into <clears throat> the types of things you can ask them to do so you do not want to um, ever be in a situation where you've created an injury for a player as a result of a piece of content you're trying to produce so you know you come up with an idea you know who can do the best scissor kick not a great idea if somebody pulls a hamstring in the you know, the manager can take an incredibly dim view that he's lost a player for, you know, four or five weeks because of something that's been done from, you know, the media side. So we're respectful from that point of view. Limited access. And the other thing you have to remember is the players are footballers. They're not entertainers. You know, some of them are better in front of camera than others. But, you know, they are paid for what they can do on a football pitch. They are not paid for, you know, funny stories they can tell or you know, being able to, you know, behave like a raconteur in front of a camera, that's, you know, that's not their their role. So you have to be <clears throat> sympathetic to that and you have to work harder to get something from them um, which makes them look good and also gets the result that you need either for a partner or for a piece of media you're trying to produce for club channels. Um, and I give a lot of credit for that to um, our uh, media team, which is led by an Australian guy called Carl Finucciaro, who's a uh, really expert at that. And over the years that he's been with us, what he's successfully been able to do is to um, make the players comfortable with him and his team. Um, you get that by familiarity. So you've got the same guy behind the camera, you've got the same guy 
telling them, you know, this is what we're going to do. And there's a level of trust built up. And Carl's done a fantastic job over the years. So they're, you know, it's it's question, you know, it's being sympathetic to the fact that they're footballers, not media personalities, and always conscious that we're trying to make them look good. And that's that's true for all aspects of our media. What teams do you think are doing the best job? Who who are the ones kind of leading the way within marketing and digital overall? <clears throat> Obviously, you can include Arsenal in in that. Obviously, I would include Arsenal in that, but um, we put Arsenal to to one side. I think um, Manchester City have done a lot of innovative stuff. I think um, when we know the guys there, Diego and Chris, do a really good job there. They test a lot of things. They do a lot of new stuff. Um, I think they've taken the position where you know they, you know, they want to catch Man United there, the you know the local rival, and they know they can't do it by going down the same traditional route that Man United have done. So they've had to innovate and do things differently, and I think they deserve credit for that. And you know, some stuff has worked, some stuff's not worked so well, but I think they they do a lot of interesting stuff. Um, then you look at what Bayern Munich do with their sponsors is amazing. They do you know they develop. You know more commercial revenue from that particular area than probably any other club. They do fantastic work there. Where do you think that is? Um, it might be down to the. I mean, I'm no expert on the German market. It could be down to the fact that you know they are the number one club in Germany, and therefore they can attract you know sponsors and great and get um, you know greater value maybe than you could in a more slightly more competitive market. Uh, I think they just, do, but they do it very well. So you know their core sponsors are. You know, people like Audi are very integrated with the club. They so they engage and they you know create value for their for their their partners very successfully. Um, you know, and then other markets. You know, Barcelona I think do you know some really interesting stuff. You know, there's a lot of interesting stuff around social. Um, you know, I think each each club do you know do, you know have their own you know opportunities and you know the you know so Klopp who came into into Liverpool recently you know I think he gave them the opportunity to. You know, take some of their media in a slightly different direction. He's very good in front of the camera. He's very entertaining. They did a, a series where they got a young fan to come in and ask him questions. And he was brilliant with that. You know, a lot of fans, a lot of managers, I don't think would be able to do that or comfortable. But he, he seems to be a natural from that point of view. So all of those types of things, I think, give you, you know, it's the club saying, right, this has happened. Therefore, this creates this opportunity, and and um, uh, you know, you need to take advantage of that because that's also what the fans want to see as well. I think. What is your take on kind of what's going on and, and what does Arsenal need to do uh, to kind of get back on track and, and hopefully fight for the title? I mean, it's been quite a few years ago since the last title. It has. Uh, I think you want to put one under your belt while, while you were there. So I'm very, yeah, for, for, I worked for, the, worked for the club um, for a number of years when we didn't win anything. We then won back-to-back FA Cups, which was great. Um, it was really nice to get that... Um, monkey off our back of not having won anything for a, for a long time. And I think everybody at the club was re- relieved about that. But, you know, Ivan sets very, um, you know, high uh, expectations for the club. And, you know, and, you know, he makes no secret of the fact that, you know, we want to be challenging for the um, Premier League and we want to be doing better in Champions League and, you know, better than we have, have been. You know, we've been incredibly successful in qualifying for it, but not then getting maybe as far as we would like. Um, you know, we, we know what we want to be doing. Um, I think it's, you know, any elite sport. Now we're, you know, we're moving into me commenting as a fan and not as a sports expert yep. because I'm not expert in this area. But I think any elite sport is about the margin. It's a little bit 
that you take advantage on in a particular game or a particular, if you're a golfer, it's on a particular hole or a tennis player. It's the key points you play. So it's not the amount of points you win, it's the key points that you win, which is the, which is, which makes the difference. So, you know, we're clearly not, um, very far away. We're only a, you know, uh, you know, a player or a couple of, um, breaks within certain games away from a championship team. I, I have to believe that because, you know, as a fan and as an employee of the club, you know, that's where we want to be as a, as a football club. But, you know, there are, you know, many teams obviously in the Premier League and, and every team, you know, wants to win the same thing. And there are only, well, <clears throat> there are three domestic product, um, game titles you can, you can win in a season. And if you're lucky enough to be in Europe, you might win one of those as well. So, you know, there's not a lot to go around, but, you know, Arsenal need to strive to, you know, win more, I guess. We're getting towards the end here. Okay. So I'll shoot a set of uh, rapid fire questions and you can elaborate if, if okay. you want. What's the most significant uh, moment in your career? I suppose um, uh, setting up a business is probably the, the biggest challenge. Um, and then I suppose, you know, working at Arsenal is the biggest privilege. So the biggest challenge was setting up the business and the biggest privilege is working for Arsenal Football Club, which is, as I said, said before, is a, is a combination of, um, you know, working for the club that I support. So that's, that's, that's an honour. What are a couple of recommendations to somebody wanting to follow in your footsteps? Uh, well, I, as I explained earlier, I was lucky and um, you do need a bit of luck. But having said that, I've seen people, you know, coming into sport, um, sports broad, you know, there's, there's clubs, there's franchises, there's um, leagues, there are broadcasters, there are digital agencies, there are many, many, many routes into a particular sport there's football there's many other sports obviously as well um so if you want to have a career in sport i think you need to first of all decide which area so are you on the journalistic side are you on the production side are you on the technical side are you on the uh, sports analytic side which is obviously a massively growing area once you've done that um it's then a question of networking within those areas um taking probably internships or lower paid jobs to start with making a net like like getting into anything which is difficult getting into broadcast or anything you know figure out what it is that you think you can add get in at the base level do a good job and you'll you know if you're good at it you'll come through who's the most well-known football contact in your phone i haven't got any football contacts in my phone you know if so i mean you know i've got the the, the guys at the premier league i guess have got I've got all their numbers and I would say, yeah, so I'd probably that. So certainly not a player. Uh, I don't have the manager's number. Um, I think he's, I've met him two or three, know, maybe a little bit more than that. It just, he's, he's a great guy to just listen to. I mean, I, I say met him, I've, I've seen him, you know, I have met him a few times, but I've also been in a position where he's been presenting and I, you know, his breadth of knowledge, not just about football, but about many different things. I think he's a pretty unique character. But I don't have his telephone number. What's something about him that's not part of kind of the common knowledge that you know? Um, 
he said he said something i saw him at a um a uh, a dinner recently literally two or three weeks ago and somebody asked him a question about losing and uh, losing a game and how much it hurt and he said uh, when he was at monaco which i think was his first club as a manager they lost the game 4-1 i think it was 4-1 and on the way home he had to stop the coach he had to make the coach stop and he was physically sick and that's how much losing hurts him um and i don't think he's sick after every game now but it's still you know that that passion for a man who's what's awesome 67 i think now um, that's quite amazing and quite quite inspirational, I think, for, you know, I hope I'm that passionate about something at that age, even though I'm mistaken for him sometimes. <laughs> uh, do you have a book recommendation? Uh, well, I think I talked about it earlier, Silk Road, and I can't remember the author, but um, it's uh, nonfiction. It's a big old tome. Actually, um uh, that one and then I've just also finished a book by a guy called Roger Kahn uh, which was called The Boys of Summer which is about the 1950s um, Dodgers baseball team so my son which we talked about before I spent, spent a year in Chicago last year very good year to be in Chicago with the Cubs and we became Cubs fans he saw them more often than I did I actually went over to Chicago once and watched them with him and we got into baseball and I think baseball is a wonderful, wonderful game. And he bought this book for me for my Christmas present. And it's the Jackie Robinson team um, and um, Pee Wee Reese and all those sort of guys. Now, I know very little about baseball, but it was so well written. I mean, I, I, you know, the guy, Roger Kahn, who wrote it, um, it's not a page turner, but it really wraps you into the story of that group of players um, and, you know, talks about some of the technicalities behind baseball, but also just what was going on in that era. Um, so it's a, it's a social history, but it's also, you know, just a fascinating book about sports. So, yeah, I think that's the one I'd recommend. You get to have dinner with three people within the football world, mm. uh, past or present. Uh, let's assume language is not a barrier. Who are those three? Um, I would like to have dinner with Arsene. Um, although I've heard him talk, as I say, many times, but he would definitely be one of them. Um, I would like to probably spend evening with uh, Bobby Moore uh, who's no longer alive and who would the third one be um, probably another manager actually uh, probably Brian Clough where would you take them where would they where would Arsenal like to go maybe maybe somewhere nice in London yeah we'd play it by ear maybe a good Italian do you have anything you would like to recommend yeah if you get the chance to come to the Emirates um, when you leave, walk up to Finsbury Park. Don't bother queuing for Arsenal Tube Station. Last one. Who do you think I should interview next on this podcast? Um, I would interview uh, Paul Molnar from the Premier League. Fantastic. I might send you a note or two and see if you can make it happen. Okay. <laughs> uh, Michael. Thank you so much for doing this. You just landed in New York today and you took the time. I know you're here for a few days and have a very busy schedule. So I, I massively appreciate that. And thank you for sharing some truly amazing insights. So thank you for having me. Have a great time here in New York. Thank I look for forward to following your progress and the team's progress. And, and I'm sure it'll be a, a more successful season. So it will. Thanks again. Okay. Cheers. Thanks.
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe on iTunes and write a review. I would really appreciate it as we grow this podcast one listener at a time. If you have any feedback or ideas, feel free to send me an email at sebastian at coffeeandfootball.com. You can also link up with me via Twitter. The handle is at coffeesfootball. Stay tuned for next episode. It will be another amazing one. Thanks again and have a great week. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. $15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.